Hey everyone, Andrew here. As penance for not publishing an episode in August, I have another episode for September. In this episode, I am joined by another fellow, Dr. Alex Taylor, and we visit with Dr. Alec Mormon from the University of Washington. Dr. Mormon is interested in coronary artery disease amongst patients with chronic kidney disease. We talk about the recent ischemia CKD trial, the nuances of treating patients with chronic kidney disease and coronary disease, and finally, how to handle referrals for cardiac risk assessment prior to kidney transplant. I definitely learned a lot, and I think you will too. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. All right, thank you both for joining with me today. I have uh, Dr. Alec Mormon and Dr. Alex Taylor visiting with me. Can I have you both introduce yourself, starting with Dr. Mormon? Hello, thank you for having me. Um, I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of Washington, and I spend a fair amount of my clinical time doing consultative work for our kidney transplant population. Perfect. And then Alex. Yeah, great. My name is Alex Taylor. I'm one of the second year cardiology fellows. Um, and I was during my first year of fellowship, um, I was in uh, Dr. Uh, Mormon's clinic um, at the Eastside Specialist Center. Perfect. And they're both, both with me uh, here to talk about um, coronary artery disease in patients with chronic kidney disease, which is a common comorbidity and a common patient population that you encounter. So how about we launch in with a patient case uh, with uh, Alex. So to kind of um, have a starting point for our conversation today, um, we'd like to talk about a 58-year-old man with a history of end-stage renal disease due to type 2 diabetes and hypertension. He's currently on hemodialysis, which he's been on for about five years. He also has hyperlipidemia uh, prior tobacco use history with a 20-pack year history quite about 15 years ago. So he's sent to see you in consultation in the cardiology clinic by his uh, uh, kidney transplant team after a screening pharmacologic nuclear stress study showed a, uh, a, a reversible perfusion defect in his distal anterior wall and apex, the sum difference score with that stress study was six. Um, a resting echo showed that his uh, left ventricular ejection fraction was 57%. He had no resting wall motion abnormalities. Um, and when you see him, he is asymptomatic without any anginal chest pain. So the, the question for discussion is, you know, should he undergo coronary angiography and possible PCI if the lesion is found? Um, and then secondarily, if he has uh, evidence of uh, uh, obstructive coronary disease um, on cath, will, uh, uh, will coronary uh, uh, revascularization decrease his preoperative risk? So before we launch into that discussion, or Dr. Mormon, might you just comment on, you, were, you mentioned, Alex, that the patient had a stress test with a sum difference score of six. Can you just, for some of our listeners who won't know what that means, is that like a low risk, high risk, medium risk, where does that kind of fall? Yeah, so that, that would be right on the border of um, what we consider moderate uh, burden of ischemia. Um, this would be an ischemia burden of approximately 10%. Okay. So moderate amount of ischemia on a patient undergoing a workup for a kidney transplant. What are your thoughts about sending this patient towards a diagnostic angiography? Um, excellent question. So historically, this is something that most kidney transplant programs would do. They would do diagnostic coronary angiography for further risk stratification in somebody who has an abnormal stress test. 
Um, now this patient's asymptomatic and has normal left ventricular ejection fraction, which is a good prognostic sign for somebody undergoing a kidney transplant. Um, so it's not definite, of course, this patient would benefit from that further information of knowing the coronary anatomy. And that's the crux of our discussion today. Mm -hmm. I, I think in these cases, you know, the, the concern of the transplant teams is that, you know, based on some, some prior data, it's known that, you know, having, having more, basically, you know, patients who have coronary disease have worse outcomes after transplant than those who don't have coronary disease. Um, but it's, you know, there, there's been no randomized data showing that, that, you know, that treating obstructive coronary stenosis actually improves outcomes in those patients. And that's, I think that's, that's where there's differences in, in practice, because uh, I think you know, there's, there's some uh, observational data that, that, you know, treating obstructive CAD actually does improve outcomes, but there's, there's, that data just doesn't exist in the randomized setting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And specific, what trials are data studies do we have, Dr. Mormon, that that supports this idea? So there's no, there's no randomized trials in the kidney transplant population in the modern era. There was, a, there was a small study done in the 1990s, a single center study where they randomized, I think, 24 patients or so to uh, coronary revascularization versus medical management. And the patients who were revascularized had better outcomes. But this was in an era before uh, what we can consider contemporary or moder modern medical therapy. So there have been randomized clinical trials for pre-op management, <clears throat> um, but not in patients with chronic kidney disease. And the most well-known and talked about is the CARP study, which was a VA study in patients who were undergoing vascular surgery, and they were randomized to routine coronary revascularization before elective vascular surgery versus medical management. And those are pretty high-risk vascular surgeries from what I recall in that trial, like... Yes, it was peripheral bypass or um, aortic aneurysm repair. So high-risk surgery in a high-risk population. Mm -hmm. And with a survival um, that's actually similar to patients with chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal disease. I think the, the, the three-year mortality was about 30%, which is comparable to the ischemia CKD's population. Yeah, very high. And otherwise... Unfortunately, it seems like for a lot of these patients with chronic kidney disease, they're excluded from a lot of those trials in these in revascularization studies. So looking at do does preoperative revascularization improve outcomes or does patient do patients with stable ischemic heart disease, do they have improved outcomes? And so that kind of leads us towards ischemia CKD. The ischemia trial then had a subsection of that, or maybe probably better called like an additional study looking mm -hmm. at patients with chronic kidney disease. And that was like a historically unique trial from uh, in that perspective, right? Correct. So our, our landmark studies in stable ischemic heart disease that preceded the ischemia trials were COURAGE and BERRY2D. COURAGE had only 16 patients enrolled with the GFR um, less than, I believe it was 45, but so very few patients with moderate to severe kidney disease in COURAGE. And BERRY2D, which was a study of patients with diabetes who are randomized to revascularization versus medical therapy, um, that study excluded patients with the creatinine greater than two. So very low numbers of CKD patients in our um, stable ischemic heart disease trials 
And it's important to remember that we can't extrapolate um, to CKD patients because the biology of their coronary disease is differently, is different. They have more medial calcifications, uh, much worse calcifications of their um, arteries, and also higher incidence of microvascular disease, um, which of course can't be managed with revascularization. Mm -hmm. So kind of coming back to our question about patients with chronic kidney disease who are, or particularly patients undergoing a transplant evaluation. And it seems like on a general high level that there are, that generally speaking, referring patients to diagnostic angiogram and revascularization strategies is probably not gonna improve benefits. However, are there select patients within that population or other strategies in which we might consider revascularization for those patients? I guess I'm specifically thinking of patients with more severe ischemia, like, or even maybe a history or, or signs suggestive of uh, triple vessel disease. Right. So we should think of these patients, I would argue we should think of our CKD patients and indications for revascularization the same as our, as our patients without CKD. And we should be revascularizing people with left main coronary disease or low EF or three vessel disease. Those are class one indications for revascularization in anybody. The idea that a high, if you select patients with a particularly high ischemia burden that you might benefit that select group with revascularization, that was the whole point of the ischemia trials. So to, to better understand that. I will say that it's common practice nationwide um, in pre-kidney transplant population that you revascularize, and I'm not saying this is the right thing to do, I'm saying historically this has been what's done, is patients are revascularized before kidney transplant if obstructive coronary disease is found. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was not driven by great evidence. That's more uh, you know, consensus or expert opinion. The, the transplant, the kidney transplant physicians point out that their patients are higher risk and this surgery is higher risk than many other populations uh, that, that are studied. So that, that's their argument for why you can't extrapolate to, to their patients. I, I guess just, as a side note, what, what are the barriers to actually doing a, a, a randomized trial of you know, preoperative coronary you know, revascularization in, in the kidney transplant population? Like why, why hasn't that been pursued historically? Excellent question. I think that the barriers are similar to some of the challenges we saw in conducting the ischemia trials. And I'm sorry, I should have mentioned at the outset in my introduction that I was the local investigator for these trials at the University of Washington. You know, the barriers are one, just collaborating with different centers who all, you know, they're subject to UNOS guidelines, but each center has some local differences in how they run a transplant program. So to do a randomized trial of any great size, you either have to do that in one single high volume center or, or collaborate. I think that some physicians would think that there wasn't enough equipoise. They would be reluctant to randomize their patients, which is a problem that we saw with the ischemia trials. Okay. So in other words, they might, acknowledge that there's this equipoise in the literature, but they wouldn't feel comfortable randomizing their patient population. 
and then the, the patients, I think it, I'm not sure it would be easy to get patients to layer on and being involved in a randomized trial in addition to all the hoops they're already jumping through to try and get a kidney transplant. I, I would worry, and I think some ethicists would worry that would patients feel like obligated to participate in the trial, like they would, even if you told them this in the consent process that the, being involved in the trial is not mandatory, there might be concerns about inducement or feeling like they have to be in the trial if they want to eventually get a kidney transplant at the center. So I think it, it would be challenging, but it, it, I think it's greatly needed. And I've, I've, I've thought about this and talked about it with our transplant docs. I think it'd just be hard to execute. Makes sense. So I'm sure this is a common referral, maybe just taking a step back, but thinking about the patients who are referred to you as part of their kidney transplant workup, what are the, like the routinely, like how do you evaluate those patients just in terms of like basic things like history, physical, and then like additional tests that are pretty common for you? I don't know, Alex, you might be able to comment on, on some of that first. Yeah, you know, what I'll say is the, the patients are typically sent to us after they've already had some sort of, you know, a non-invasive stress test. Um, it's, and it, it tends to be a mix of either a you know, pharmacologic nuclear test or in, in some cases, uh, some, some form of stress echo. Um, you know, what we've encountered is that the, um, you know, the sensitivity and specificity of non-invasive stress testing is actually pretty low in the CKD population. And I think it's, it's particularly an issue with the uh, uh, nuclear stress tests um, where, where they you know, just, just don't perform as well. You know, I, I think that you know, probably in part related to the increased prevalence of probably a, a microvascular disease in the, in the CKD population, you know, what, what, what are the other things that, that you know, contribute to that? or sensitivity specificity. Sure. I mean, just one thing along that is, I think, looking at the data from the Ischemia CKD paper is that for patients, all these patients had a positive stress test, but about a fourth of them had no evidence of, of obstructive coronary disease on their, on their angiogram. Uh, Dr. Mormon, yeah, could you elaborate on those? Yeah, so I think we saw that for a few reasons. One, and, and Alex just mentioned this, but the sensitivity and specificity of myocardial perfusion scans in the CKD population is worse than it is with the general population. That's, that's been published. Um, Robert Wood Johnson Medical Center, New Jersey published their data and the likelihood ratios, the, both the positive and the negative likelihood ratios of a myocardial perfusion scan are less than 50%. So that, that's pretty, um, it's pretty awful. bad. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty bad. I mean, it's worse than a coin flip, right? So, I and I think part of that is true false positives leading to coronary angiography, but part of it is also the microvascular disease where they have myocardial ischemia, but they don't have obstructive disease in the epicardial coronaries that you see on a cath and that you could potentially treat uh, with the mechanical conduit. So, I think it's a mixture of both those things. And then for the CKD, the ischemia CKD study, there was no um, coronary CTA to rule out, or, or I'm sorry, to exclude the patients with non-obstructive epicardial disease from being randomized, which, which we were able to do in the main mm -hmm. ischemia study. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. 
Um, and if I could, if I could um, go back to your original, if I could add a few things, you, you asked about the workup and the history and the physical. And um, yeah, I wanted to mention that it, and this, this was maybe going, going to come up later, but patients with chronic kidney disease are much more likely to have absent or atypical symptoms of angina, similar to patients with diabetes. That, that can be one of the challenges with when assessing these patients, because most of them have multiple risk factors for coronary disease, but they don't, using angina as a, as a screening tool is not, not sufficient. Yeah, and another interesting bit from that ischemia CKD paper, I think about half of the patients enrolled in there reported no angina on their, on their baseline questionnaire, just mm -hmm. as like to further validate what, what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. um, I do have some other questions or topics that are related to this, but I think they are also particularly highlighted better by the second case. So let's turn over to Alex to, to lead us into the second case here. All right, so for our second case, um, this is a 62-year-old woman with a history of CKD stage four. Uh, so her GFR is 18. Uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, prediabetes, and then an elevated body mass index of uh, 34 uh, kilograms per meter squared. So um, she is sent to um, cardiology by her primary care physician uh, because she's been having some chest pains. Um, her medications at the time of the consultation include lisinopril, five milligrams daily, pravastatin, 20 milligrams daily, as well as a, a metoprolol succinate, 25 milligrams daily. And what she describes to you is that over the past few months, um, she's noticed a pressure in her left chest when she carries a bag of groceries. Um, the pressure goes away when she stops to rest. Uh, she has symptoms about once per week. Her pulse is 70 beats per minute to the blood pressure 136 over 84. Um, and so um, you decide to send her for a treadmill stress echocardiogram to further evaluate her, um, to kind of further uh, figure out what's going on with her symptoms. So uh, she exercised for six minutes in the Bruce Cook protocol and uh, stopped when she started having her typical chest pain. Um, and the echo images show that she has uh, uh, inducible hypokinesis of the inferior wall at peak exercise. So the, the question posed here is, uh, should she undergo coronary angiography and possible PCI for this abnormal uh, stress uh, uh, test result? Yeah, I would argue um, no. Uh, this is not a high-risk stress test, and she has stage four CKD, so there is um, real risk of giving this patient contrast and potentially accelerating her kidney disease. And um, she's not currently on optimal or guideline-directed medical therapy for her um, presumed CAD. So I think my practice even before CKD, but, but validated by the CKD study, is that I would medically manage a patient like this, at least mm -hmm. to start. And I, I think we, we talked about this a bit earlier, but you know the, the data for um, secondary prevention therapy with statins and aspirin is it's not quite as strong in the in patients who have significant CKD. Um, and so do you, do you ever find that you're, you know, are there situations where you, you know, you, you don't prescribe um, statins for secondary prevention in CKD patients, or do you, do you typically you know, add, add it on? Yeah, so for, my, for patients who have proven um, atherosclerosis, like clinically important atherosclerosis, I would say, like evidence of ischemia on a stress test or history of MI or stroke, I still uh, would manage that patient with the highest intensity statin therapy they could tolerate. Mm -hmm. um, 
it is true that the evidence for benefit with statin therapy in patients with CKD and ESRD um, is worse. There have been two large randomized trials, the Aurora study and the um, 4D study. And these were trials of atorvastatin or rosuvastatin in patients with advanced kidney disease. And there was no um, benefit for reducing MACE uh, or mortality with statins. So there, there's kind of this paradox because CKD patients are very high risk for dying of uh, heart disease, but the, the, ben the evidence for statins benefiting them is not strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to probe a little bit about this issue because it seems to me that it, maybe it's an issue of competing risk for these patients. And so they have very advanced kidney disease statin therapy is probably going to take a few years for these to take effect. And if you have very advanced levels of chronic kidney disease, you know, GFR is less than 20, for example, you know, are you really going to get the, get the benefit to it? Mm -hmm. um, but it also is kind of like a bit of a cognitive dissonance for me because at the same time, it's like, well, these patients are at such high risk for coronary disease, uh, strokes, and like you mentioned, these, I mean, their event rates are high. Mortality is like 30% at a year. Um, yeah. Or for like for events. I don't know. More thoughts about that? Or like how do, I guess, what, are, what do people talk about this like in the, in the literature? Like what do, pe what do people say when this issue comes up? Yeah, you're right. One of the theories is competing risk and that it's just their, um, their life expectancy is so short that they're not going to derive the benefit. Um, I think there's also probably um, this might be related to the fact that they're less likely to have like lipid rich or soft plaque versus the the dense medial calcifications or the Munkeberg's um, arteriosclerosis is the original term in the pathology literature. Their endothelium and their coronary disease might just be different than the patients with coronary disease who are enrolled in uh, the primary and secondary prevention statin trials. I'll say that, you know, we love randomized clinical trials. I think they are kind of the pinnacle or the best study that we can do, but there's also the risk of type 2 error with these types of studies, and there are, um, there's retrospective or like observational type studies that still suggest benefit to statin therapy in this population when you, when you pool data or look at community uh, data. So again, my practice is that I still use statins in secondary prevention scenarios or patients with proven coronary disease, mm -hmm. um, especially when they have multiple reasons, like if they also have type 2 diabetes, for example. Yeah, and I, I think in some of those you know trials looking at statin therapy in patients with CKD, when they did you know a, a, a subgroup, um, you know when they looked at subgroups who had high LDL cholesterol, I think there, there there was some benefit. You know if they had, you know CKD patients have concomitant hyperlipidemia, there there may still be some benefit to statin therapy. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, interesting. Um, as I also think about patients with chronic kidney disease, there's kind of the, like the typical patient with chronic kidney disease that I see in as a cardiology trainee. So these are my patients with hypertension, diabetes, and then they have chronic kidney disease. 
And so I frequently forget about this other population of patients who you probably see a little bit more of, but these are patients with the primary like uh, kidney pathologies. So like our nephrotic syndromes, our nephritic syndromes and those issues. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about like the, in terms of, should we be thinking about them differently and in the respects of their benefits to statin medications as well and how we approach their risk and mitigating their risk for cardiovascular disease? Yeah, I, th- I, I do think we should think about them differently in terms of their medical management and also the way that we interpret tests and think about whether to go down that cath and revascularization pathway. Um, some examples that come to mind, like I frequently see patients who are referred to me who have like autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, they're 40 years old, they're like stage five CKD getting worked up for transplant and they get a perfusion scan that has a mild abnormality in the inferior wall, cannot rule out diaphragmatic attenuation artifact. Well, that's the sort of patient that I will not cath because they don't have the additional risk factors that you mentioned, they're young, there's a high risk of a false positive nuclear stress study in that, that context. So these patients who have primary uh, kidney disease issues without the additional cardiovascular um, risk factors, I do treat differently. And for primary prevention, I do think, back to your statin question, I don't reflexively start statins for primary prevention in patients with CKD. Like I would not, I would be very cautious about using the ASCVD risk calculator or um, putting an ESRD patient on a statin for high LDL if they didn't have any other risk factors. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. In fact, one interesting thing as I was preparing for this, I looked again at the ASCVD risk calculator and there's really nothing in there about chronic kidney disease or like your base or like your serum creatinine levels. Like it's completely just not even included in that score which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. We've kind of hit like a hodgepodge of things. Maybe that's kind of like some summary comments or thoughts. Yeah, I could turn to Alex's just some things that like you learned or like some takeaways from like your your time in clinic and like some like pearls and highlights from managing of those patients. And then maybe we'll turn over to Dr. Mormon as well for other other pearls or like some summative comments as well. Yeah, I think my my biggest takeaways from, you know, seeing these patients in clinic would be, you know, just just being kind of, I guess, trying to put the stress test result in the context of the, of the patient, you know, and, and if you have a high suspicion for artifact, you know, from a nuclear stress study, for example, um, you know, following up with a tiebreaker, which, you know, for example, could be a stress echocardiogram, um, you know, there's, there's potentially a role for coronary CTA here, but, you know, if we've run into the issue of, of, you know, of giving contrast, these patients are already kind of teetering on dialysis, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not clear for risk of, of you know, a venous contrast is is as bad as the risk of giving you know, an artery for a, a diagnostic angiogram. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's something in, in some cases that we we contemplated doing. Um, and I think in terms of you know, the, I, I think the other striking thing is you know I, I probably saw maybe over the course of my year with Dr. Mormon, thirty or forty patients um, you know who had had advanced chronic kidney disease and had abnormal stress tests. And I mean, I would say a, a very small fraction, I mean, almost none of them actually had angina symptoms. Um, you know, so these, the ischemia was really just um, something that was uh, kind of uh, uh, uncovered from just doing a, a you know, it's, it was usually just 
we kind of you know, figured out they had ischemia because they'd gotten a kind of a, a screening stress test as part of a, a pre-transplant evaluation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, honestly, I, I didn't, um, you know, do much, you know, I, I didn't really find myself adding anti-angel therapy very frequently just because they were asymptomatic and it wasn't clear to me that they really needed any more, sure. um, you know, medical therapy. Um, and then, you know, similarly, we, we, uh, you know, pretty rarely started statins for these patients. You know, we, I would, I would typically check, uh, you know, I would check their, uh, LDL to make sure it wasn't very high, but typically it was like modestly elevated, you know, somewhere between 130 and 150. And so I, I kind of found myself in this situation where, you know, we, we know they're at elevated cardiovascular risk, but we don't really know, you know, if any medical therapies are actually going to improve their outcome. Um, and then, you know, the, the, um, uh, the question from the kidney transplant team is always, well, you know, you know, the, if, you know, we, we have the stress test result that's abnormal, so, you know, we, we should just, you know, cap the patient. Um, you know, I think as we've kind of talked about, it's, it, it, it's really not clear that, you know, doing that is really going to change the patient's outcome at all. But, you know, I, I, I think it, it, it probably helps the, you know, transplant team in, in their kind of uh, risk stratification process. You know, if someone has multivessel disease, then perhaps they're going to be less likely to offer the, the patient a, a transplant. You know, I think that's, that's mm-hmm. those are kind of my, my takeaways. Gotcha. Thank you. Dr. Marmon. Yeah, I think, so a few takeaway points. First, the ischemia CKD study um, really validates a conservative approach for most of these patients and that we can stick with medical therapy. And I've been working with our uh, transplant team um, to educate them on that and to try and get them more comfortable. And they have been accepting, but we, we do have to acknowledge that this wasn't a this wasn't a perioperative management study, but we can, um, I think, use the data to inform our decisions. And one thing to realize is that one of the reasons that they want the cath is for prognostic information. They want to know if this patient's high risk, not just for the patient and see what their risk is at the time of surgery, but also because they think of the the organ is a precious resource. You don't want to have the patient have a bad outcome and have that kidney end up being you know, wasted for lack of a better term. That's where the transplant doctors are coming from. But on the other hand, the data shows that even high risk patients, patients who have um, very high RCRI scores, high risk of cardiovascular events around the time of surgery, they still have a better survival if they have a transplant compared to the expected survival if they stay on dialysis. And at at our center here, our transplant team is becoming more comfortable with the idea of sending higher risk patients to surgery, knowing that they will have some non-ST elevation MIs in the post-op period. But even when they see those, those patients often um, do well. And I have now seen a couple of patients who we sent for kidney transplant who did have perioperative end STEMIs, but they still did well and their, their transplant took and they're off dialysis and they have a great quality of life. So I think it's important that we move away from this concept that you know an abnormal stress test necessitates a cath and an abnormal cath necessitates revascularization. Well, 
I think that was a really informative discussion. I really appreciate both of you lending your time and your expertise, expertise and knowledge on the subject. And thank you again for participating. All right. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thanks for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This show is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on MedPage Today.